0: 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boorong people of the Kulin Nation, who are traditional owners and custodians of this land. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. see our breakfast.
1: Oh, Alternative news, analysis, Clap and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 oh, a.m. to 8:30 a.m.
2: Only double. <laughs>
3: Good morning. Good morning, Alice. Good to be back. Sorry for leaving you alone last week.
0: Yeah, yeah. We just have a full studio
4: this week. <laughs> yeah, we're all here to support you. <laughs> Feeling very cozy in Studio One
3: today. <laughs> Alice, back from Abu Dhabi. Yeah, back. How was that? In Australia. Um,
5: yeah, it was really good. So I got family there at the moment. My um, my sister is a teacher, so I went to visit her for a bit, and she gave us a bit of a tour of the local school that she works at, and. Um, yeah, introduced us, some of her friends there, and it was, yeah, really, really great. It was, yeah, it was interesting as well, because we just left, and they put the whole school into lockdown um because of the coronavirus. And she's now doing viral lessons, um and so nobody's allowed to come into, like, contact with each other. Oh, so wow. we just missed that by about 12 hours. Like virtual,
4: virtual lessons, you mean?
5: Yeah. Did I say virtual? What? My it's gone viral, everyone We knew what gold. Look out for it. It's a viral feed. Uh yeah, virtual. It's very early.
3: And, and so it's Monday. What was what was travelling like with the coronavirus? Like what what's the feel in airports? Is everyone wearing masks? A lot
5: of people were wearing masks, yeah. There were heaps wearing masks. Um and I I, I wasn't I guess I hadn't thought about it um Oh, I guess I knew it was, there was going to probably be something, but I hadn't, hadn't thought about it at all.
0: Yeah. I think the word is masks actually don't protect you if you yeah. don't have coronavirus. It's only useful if you already do.
5: And I think also there is only benefit on having a mask that's like of, of really good quality that can mm. actually flow the air in and out. Otherwise yeah. you're making it really damp around your face, which is put like potentially sure more, yeah. yeah, more um, damaging to your health. Because it can attract that, that sort of bacteria and, and the virus. So I'm told. <laughs> I'm not a medical expert. <laughs> Were there
4: any issues with toilet paper supplies? <laughs> <laughs> On there the was plane? L- that was plenty
5: not- of toilet paper for all my needs. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I didn't have any. There was no issues I saw. Oh, but crazy I know but I feel so like cool. I came back to that I didn't realize that any of that was happening and then I came back and then I saw all, I was going through my like Facebook or whatever and I just saw loads of pictures coming up of everyone
0: sort of going on yeah. a crisis yeah, I was in there the other day and there's all these shelves empty I just wanted to make cookies and there was no flour <laughs> so, <laughs> like literally no flour every yeah, brand was gone and the really flour pasta yeah. to a in some pasta um, doomsday prepping.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And it's very hard to get hand san as well. Yeah. My mm. husband went to stock up and came home with Japanese ro- rose water mm. soap mm. or something. Mm. He always said, "That's not what we asked for." <laughs> <gasps> Panic.
5: Yeah, <laughs>
4: because that was all
5: that was left. And how long ago was that? Was that? That <laughs> was yesterday. Like, yesterday in, in
4: Coles. Oh wow.
5: <laughs> yeah, and um, my my mum is a massive like costco fan like, i don't know i know costco is big in america and it's and we've got a massive one at home it's just like a big wholesaler
3: yeah we've got, the we've, have like you got them here the military, as well? yeah that's years, so Patrick funny like Lenders do you Lenders have Lenders. them here <laughs> <laughs> oh cute <laughs>
5: um but no she went and she said it was the busiest that she's ever ever seen it like christmas time is always super busy but like the other day it was just manic people were just grabbing Everything that oh, they could get. Where we we live in places where there's like abundance of food anywhere that you go, and people are stocking up on flour.
4: Yeah, like come bizarre. on, people. <laughs> I think it's you know in case they get quarantined in their
5: home. people eats. I, yeah. There's
2: yeah.
5: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like there's so many options. Like, I just don't think we need to go to this length. <laughs> like even if you're 14 days that you're in at home, how many how many bloody flour? How much flour do you need? You know? Yeah. <laughs> come on. <laughs> how many loaves of bread are you gonna?
0: bake yourself yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah apparently there's a theory out there because australia we've had the bushfires so recently that everyone's kind of already poised for a, another disaster oh. yeah mm. Oh,
5: really so it's kind of gone into panic mode as well there mm. yeah
0: everyone's still on edge mm-hmm. or um not feeling so secure and it's more likely that you have things like that where everyone's sort of stockpiling and panicking <laughs> i think um,
4: kind of, yeah. the other interesting part of it is the um mixed sort of information about the milder symptoms. There's been some information saying that the milder symptoms of coronavirus um, are flu-like symptoms, including, but also have the addition of shortness of breath, and that's the distinguishing factor between Mm. just a normal cough and cold. Um, But then I read something that said, no, actually, you can still have shortness of breath with a cough and cold. Um, and my daughter actually had a cough and cold and shortness of breath on Friday. Um, Get so her out. Get yeah. her out. <laughs> well, <Or a> <laughs> that's the, you know. Um, and we rang the doctor because they said, you know, don't just turn up, ring first. And they basically they ran through the symptoms and the contact history that she'd had and said that it wasn't severe enough to be swabbed. So that was really interesting because it then begged the question, well, is it just the normal virus or actually, you know, is it a mild version of the coronavirus? And then what does that mean for her? What does that mean for the family? What does that mean for her going back out into the world? You know, mm. do we keep it? You know, and then but there must be a lot of people out there with coughs and colds. And are we, yeah, so it doesn't really... Um, There doesn't seem to be a lot of guidance for how to handle Mm. that that situation, you know, rather than the extreme, you know, where you're obviously very sick.
0: Yeah, even articles I see where it's um, something along the lines of here's what you need to know or the corona facts, it still leaves a lot of questions, I find. I think um, we're still learning about it.
4: But we do all know how to wash our hands now. Yes. (laughs) We (laughs) know that. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah.
5: Have you come into contact with anything that you've seen, Paddy?
3: Uh, I've found those Uber bikes out on the street. Have Have you guys heard about that? The new Uber bikes? No, yeah, yeah. which is probably a good way of getting the coronavirus because anyone can hop on them. You just <laughs> need the Uber app. But they're these ele- electronic bikes uh, that you can use your Uber app to like scan a little barcode and then it unlocks the helmet and you jump on and ride away. And it's like that electric power. Mm. Yeah, it comes with a helmet. Otherwise, it's illegal to ride, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. But
5: um, what was it like?
3: It was like fast. Like there's no there's no stress on your legs when you're going up hills and stuff. It was pretty cool, but uh, was so expensive. Why? Is there I, no stress because, because it's electric. Yeah, oh, it's electric. Yeah, you so it starts like to... going zoom, and then you go straight up the hill. Sounds amazing. But um. Yeah, it costs like $4 for 10 minutes, so you're much better off using public mm. transport.
5: And where do you put them? Where do you pick them up from and where do you leave them?
3: Just wherever you please. I, I Does it come
5: with a little chain or something? Yeah, so the back
3: in? the back wheel, um, I guess where the electronics body is, is like sort of encased a bit, and there's a lock that comes out of that, and you when you're finished, you lock the helmet into that, and yeah. then that sort of ends your session.
5: And is it, do you have to download another version of Uber to get, or do you go onto your Uber and you decide it's a bike or it's a
3: Yeah, yeah, there's a little car. option to use the bicycle. Um, and, yeah, they, they were just, like, <laughs> out on the street in front of my house randomly. They just appeared there overnight. Um, so, yeah, yeah it's, it'll be interesting to see whether all these end up in the Yarra River, like the yellow bikes from a couple of yeah, years I ago. Say, do oh, yeah, do you guys
0: have those Lime
3: scooters in Melbourne?
0: Um, so we got those in Brisbane where it's basically the same thing an electric, uh, but a scooter, not a bike. Um, that you could hire in the similar process. Cool. Um, Cool, but it resulted in lots of lime scooter helmets sort of strewn throughout the city. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure when they brought in
4: these red bikes, um, there was something that was happening that was going to be different because they already had had that problem with the previous bike hire system. And I do recall um, there was some mechanism to prevent that happening again, but I cannot... Yeah, I remember exactly what it was, but probably
3: heavier.
4: (laughs) Well, actually they are very heavy. Yeah, I rode one in um, Amsterdam quite a few years ago, and um, yeah, it's sort of we put them down to have a cup of coffee, and then getting up, getting it up, uh, it was was sort of on a bit of an angle, and yeah, the weight of it sort of went on me, and I was quite surprised how um, it's not just like hopping on a normal. (laughs) Bike, it's they're quite heavy, Mm. okay. All right, what's on for the show today, everyone?
3: Well, I think uh, at the end of the show today, oh no, in the middle of the show, we're going to hear from Rebecca Stewart from Monash University uh, following up from that alternative news piece we did a couple of weeks ago on men's behavior change programs. I hear that the Formula One is going on near your house. What are are you going to hear about that?
4: Oh, yes. I uh, spoke to Peter Logan, who's part of the Save Albert Park group that's been going um, since the beginning of the uh, Grand Prix Formula One at Albert Park and, um, yeah, had a really interesting chat to him and, uh, yeah, we'll be hearing from him very shortly. Uh, That kicks off this Thursday, so... um, yeah, there's already uh, barricades and lots of orange plastic on kerbs waiting to be erected um, to cordon off areas for tourists and so forth. So, yeah, lots of disruption if you live in, in that area.
5: Well, at 7.30 um, we're going to be talking about the US and Iran conflict and either it, whether there has been developments in that or... Um, yeah, just sort of taking a look at that in a little bit more detail, as it hasn't had much more attention really than what it did in January when it kind of happened. So we just want to revisit that and see if there are any developments that have happened there. Um, and also, coronavirus has sort of hit Iran relatively bad, and what what were the US's responses to that? Excellent.
3: I was interested by that. Like, why why? When you look at the map, it's like China is the leading um, place where it's like 70,000 people, I think, and then Italy and Iran. Why, why were their numbers so high? I know.
5: I'm, that's what I'm interested in as South well. South Korea.
3: South Korea as well. But that's
4: yeah. got the proximity to
5: China. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Well, it could be in relation to
4: how it was handled mm. at the outset of the problem. Um, we don't know what yeah. responses countries had in, internally. Um, whether they, you know, what their attempts to contain it were, Mm. whether they went public, whether they knew, you know, had the same information Mm. systems. And also
5: what, like, medically, if they're working off of, or if they initially were all, everyone was working off the exact same guidelines, like if it was based on your Mm. own, each country's medical system, do some countries tend to diagnose flu-like symptoms more severely than others and how seriously do they take those first symptoms... Yeah. I mean I mean yeah it's a, it's a conversation for another show I reckon.
3: Yes. Mm. That's right. But we'll do our best to answer those hard <laughs> questions on Monday morning breakfast. Here's Better in Black by Thelma Plum.
0: And that was Thelma Plum with Better and Black.
3: Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Rebecca Stewart, following on from our alternative news piece about uh, men's behaviour change programs. She's currently working... Oh, sorry. Re- Rebecca Stewart is currently working on a PhD as part of a Behaviour Change Graduate Research Industry Partnership, a collaboration between Behaviour Works Australia, and, which is the Monash Sustainable Development Institute, and the Victorian Health Promotion Foundation. And that PhD is investigating direct participation programs working with men and boys to address restrictive gender norms and stereotypes to shift attitudes and behaviors, which is within the context of exploring the broader implications this work has for gender neutral, gender equality efforts and the better health and wellbeing of boys and men, as well as women and girls. Uh, so, the first question I asked Rebecca Stewart was what are, what actually are these men's behaviour change programs?
2: So,
6: men's behaviour change programs are nothing new, we've had them since the 80s here in Australia. Uh, however, what is lacking is uh, evaluation and research into their how effective they are um, and we still don't have any national standards or regulations for how they should be managed or delivered or even evaluated. Uh, and as a result, they actually really differ quite a lot across state and territories, which are their funding source. And they also differ again by provider based on resources available. However, generally speaking, we can say that they run for anything from three to six months uh, and includes weekly group sessions. And these group sessions are used to address attitudes and behaviours that are supportive of abusive behaviours using things like presentations, role plays, group discussions and the like. Uh, And I guess one of the interesting things about the funding announced last week was that it also specified counselling and home visits, which is an important distinction because currently one-on-one support and case management is really quite resource dependent And what little research we do have suggests that a one-size-fits-all approach really isn't the most effective way to treat um, the men that are in these programs. Uh, uh, The programs really focus on educating and skill building. So there's a real emphasis on placing responsibility onto the abuser and them accepting this responsibility and really working to disrupt this victim-blaming attitude and narrative that we're seeing still far too often. and the programs look at educating about the lasting effects of negative um, uh, sorry the lasting negative effects of male family violence, and the differences between uh, a feeling and a behaviour and how we really do have control over our behaviour. So they do things like promoting skills such as men learning to recognise the many different ways that they can be violent and controlling, and perhaps most crucially, they work on prevention tactics so things like prioritizing settings and relationships such as friendships that support their choice to be nonviolent, so really creating that environmental support to help them commit to the changes that they're trying to make. And really looking at that abuse cycle and how to circuit break it. So by that I mean identifying the thoughts and feelings and even the physiological reactions that are part of that winding up and um, escalation process that leads to the, the abuse and the violence. And how to uh, le- working on um, developing winding down thoughts and how to activate those um, to sort of break that cycle. And I guess the one constant that we can speak to across all the programs is that they are really embedded in the fact that safety of women and children is paramount.
3: Uh, so, so men can choose to attend these programs or be referred, or they can be mandated by the court to attend. Are there differences in the outcomes that we're seeing depending on how they come to the program?
6: Patrick, I'm not really aware of any research that looks at the differences based on basis of entry. Um, there is one study that I found that looks at motivation at entry um, and how this influences outcomes. So they found that men either had a possessive motivation, so doing it to win a person back um, type mentality, or more of a developmental motivation. So doing it to invest in them and their relationship. And predictably, the the possessive group had worked outcomes, Um, but it is worth noting that this is a study with uh, 21 men.
3: Okay.
6: So it's also worth noting that often those that choose to attend as opposed to being referred uh, or mandated to do so are doing so because people are of pushing them in that direction, whether it be their families or their partners or their social circles. Um, so they might be there voluntarily, but it might not have been a personal voluntary choice, uh, if that makes sense.
3: Yeah, so it's social um, pressure sort of towards it.
6: Yeah, and I think motivation to be there is going to have a real impact on outcomes. The first step to being willing to change your behaviour in any, any type of behaviour is admitting that there is an issue with what's happening and being willing and open to doing the work that need, is needed to fix it.
3: Um, so, so, the yeah. article you and Brianna Wright wrote for the Conversation is titled "More Funding Promised to Men's Behaviour Change Programs, But We're Still Not Sure They Work." What are the results, if any, that families see when men go through these programs?
6: So, as we, as I mentioned before, there really isn't much research um, to give us a sense of this in the thirty odd years that they've been running here in Australia. Um, and I guess again, it's pointing to the um, the stuff we discussed earlier around what the programs involve. So ideally, the the overall aim of these programs is to reduce the level of fear um, that the partners or ex-partners and families are experiencing, and to teach men ways to um, break that cycle and use different tactics to deal with emotions or pressures as opposed to going down that abusive or violent pathway. Um, but we just don't have the evidence as to how they work, and we've still got events like last week happening, um, which is really concerning.
3: <laughs> so we need more <laughs> <laughs> more research and standardization into, into uh, standardization of these programs?
6: Absolutely. Uh, Evaluation is crucial. It's something that falls to the wayside quite often. Um, due to lack of resources or know-how. And I'm really hopeful that this money that's been announced last week, will some of that will go towards evaluation because if we want these programs to be as effective as possible, we need to be um, evaluating them and making sure that they're having the impact that's desired. Uh, The other thing is that we really need to be investing in frontline services, uh, women's shelters and um, emergency accommodation. These things are crucial to supporting and protecting women when they are preparing to and actually do leave these abusive relationships. And this is something that's been discussed at great length over the past week, um, which is when they're at the, the greatest risk. Yet we see a continued reduction in funding of these services. So I think there's the men's behaviour change programs, is one small piece of the puzzle, but there are many others that we need to be equally focused on.
3: Definitely. Uh, needs to be a safe place to go when when a person does feel uh feel the opportunity to leave i suppose
6: absolutely and and reports from hannah's family indicate that she was very much um in fear for her life and aware that the the choice to leave was not an easy one, and she was doing everything she could to protect herself and her children um, in that time but the supports you know what she got everything she could from her family but in terms of Um, systemic support, there just wasn't enough there.
3: So what do we know about the precursors to men's family violence? What are the factors that foster these behaviour patterns of violence and control way before their relationship even starts?
6: The key drivers of men's violence against women are quite well established and for anyone wanting more information on this, I would highly recommend heading over to the Our Watch website. They have a heap of really good resources and information and, in particular, their Change the Story framework has been a really foundational resource in this area. Um, The drivers themselves are condoning of violence against women. It's men's control of decision-making and limits to women's independence in public and private life. It's rigid gender roles and stereotype constructions of what it means to be a man or a woman, and, and male peer relations that emphasize aggression and disrespect towards women. So it's sexist and explicit comments and jokes and a failure to call these things out. It's modeling disrespect to children across settings like the home, at school, or you know in sporting clubs. It's unequal division of domestic labor and childcare. It is normalizing a power imbalance within a relationship and feeding into this notion that you can own another person. Um, and for anyone who has read the article, or is planning to after this interview, we've linked to a really excellent video from Our Watch that is a really—it's a really great explainer of these drivers and how they, I guess, stack up. So it's—it's it's not just a wake up and this is the reality. It's a building of pressures and factors over time um, that we need to be addressing all of them along the way, and ideally addressing them right at the start so that the behaviours.
3: Don't eventuate at all. Yeah, so it's, such a you know so, so much that we need to fix in, in uh, the society and the culture. At the beginning of my long-term relationship, I found myself with feelings of jealousy, you know, sometimes quite irritable, and I went to see a psych- psychologist to work those things out. And it's been really gr- a great thing for me and the relationship. Is one-on-one therapy something men should consider, even if they aren't using domestic violence against their partner?
6: Patrick, this really isn't an area of expertise, but I personally would say that investment in your mental health is always a positive thing. Um, having an impartial third party, whether that be a professional psychologist or someone trusted to you, uh, or even one of the helplines that they're all anonymous, it's another great resource to talk things through with is something that I personally swear by, and it sounds like you've got a lot out of it also. Um, I think it's also important to reiterate that the definition of domestic and family violence is broader than just physical violence. It includes emotional, psychological, financial, and people can often be surprised by the types of behaviors that are actually included in this definition. Um, the crux of domestic violence is power and control and a sense of ownership over your partner, uh, and it's about controlling and coercive behaviors that can come, um, and, and this can come in many forms but i would say that if you're feeling uncomfortable with your behavior then chances are your partner or those around you are too um and there's really no drawback to seeking more information or investing in personal development or growth so in a my big, humble opinion
3: a, a big part of uh domestic violence and is is how that behavior is affecting the the partner like that's sort of like where the def- definition of it comes from
6: mhm absolutely it's it's two people that are involved and it's it's really this this power and um Oh, sure.
2: yeah.
3: So your article ends by saying, to see real change, we need to start earlier. Where do you think that change needs to p- take place? Is it at home, in the school, or is it at a wider cultural and social level?
6: So domestic violence, uh, domestic and family violence is a really complex social issue, um, and there just is no one solution. Um, there's no one-size-fits-all or silver bullet that's going to help us out here. It's going to require everyone to get on board. Um, and we really need to be looking at um, they call primary prevention programs, so it's dealing with the drivers that we've just discussed and looking to stop the behaviors before they develop in the first place, and where my research is really focused. So it's learning about consent, it's developing skills around having difficult conversations and how to recognize and counteract these harmful gender norms. Um, it's working with youth, but also also the adults in their lives, and just society in general, um, and providing ongoing support and education um, to drive this change. It's messy, it's hard, it requires all of us to get involved and, and take a bit of a hard look at ourselves and the people around us and the environments that we um, operate and participate in. And it's going to require everyone to really pitch in if we if we want to make a, and see a real change.
3: And that was Rebecca Stewart uh, speaking about men's behaviour change programs. Rebecca Stewart is working on a PhD as part of the Behaviour Change Graduate Research Industry Partnership at Monash University. And if you are experiencing family violence, you can call Lifeline one three one 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 four. And if you're worried about your behaviour uh, as a man, then you can call one eight hundred Respect or one eight hundred seven three two seven three two to access help for that.
2: From every corner of the land, womankind
5: arrives! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs.
2: ...rights,
7: Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our
0: lover. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au.
5: And it's 7.31 and you're listening to 3CR on Monday Breakfast. And we now have an interview with um, Sharam Akbar Zarder, who is a research professor of Middle East and Central Asian politics at Deakin University. Firstly, good morning, Sharam. Um, I just wanted to quickly recap, really, um, what's happened at the beginning of the year with the Iran and the US conflict and the assassination of the Iran general Qasem Soleimani. Um, I feel like we haven't really had much attention to this since we first, this first came about in January the 3rd, 2020. What led to Trump ordering the death of Qasem Soleimani on this date? And I'm apologies, we're just going to have to run through a break at the moment and we'll be back shortly.
0: Uh, see, so this is Mia Dyson with Return. <laughs> And that was Handel with One More Chance. Now we're going to listen to another song. Uh, this is Everything Is Free from Gillian Wench. <laughs>
1: i uh-huh. That's what I say.
0: Gillian Wench with everything is free
5: and we were going to be speaking to Sharam Akbar but we're actually going to be speaking to him next week now 7.30 on Monday so do tune in Um, we had a little bit of trouble trying to get him on the phone but next week we'll have that all cleared up so we'll have a great interview for you about the Iran and US conflict so do come back next week and listen to that
0: can hardly wait for next week now. I mean, oh. this was a very
5: small preview, and my God. Oh. The suspense is building. The suspense, the suspense is there. So, yes, we will be chatting with um, Sharam Akbarzadeh Akbar next week.
3: 3CR is about community.
4: This Thursday, the Australian Formula One Grand Prix kicks off for the 25th time at one of Melbourne's biggest public spaces of recreation, Albert Park. This 225 hectare parkland and lake is loved by joggers, cyclists, dogs, ducks, and according to Parks Victoria, those who simply want to catch their breath and take a moment to enjoy the magnificent views of the city skyline. Back in the 1950s, car racing had taken place at the park But it wasn't until the mid-90s that it became home to the Australian Formula One Grand Prix, an international motor racing championship that cuts the space off from public use and transforms it into a 16-turn, 5.3-kilometre circuit of screeching cars with high-octane power, racing at speeds of up to 230 miles per hour. For local residents, it's a four-day nightmare. Droning car noise, ear-piercing flyover planes, crowds, road closures and detours. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, according to Peter Laylaw, founding member of the Save Albert Park Group, who I spoke to last week. The group has been calling for the end of the Grand Prix at Albert Park for 25 years. Before we got into the guts of why they object, I asked Peter about his personal connection to the park.
8: Uh well it's been important to me all my life I grew up in South Melbourne uh when it was a slum and uh took up sport there so I wasn't very good at sport but uh I used to like running around the lake and in fact I still do 50 years later running around Albert Park it was uh my parents were quite upset when the motor racing arrived in the 1950s how's that so there's a bit of family history there as well uh they saw it as a public park and uh, they were quite happy when the motor racing was put on a proper circuit. Uh, that was around about 1962, I think. I mean, it was proper car racing, except people were standing around nearby behind, uh, hay bales, so it was extremely dangerous. And, of course, in a civilised society, uh, we, you know, Victoria decided it should go on a motor racing track. It was only when we got a casino that uh, they decided, oh, no, let's have it at Albert Park again, you know. There seemed to be a... The casino owner was uh, also the person who the government appointed to run the Grand Prix.
4: Can you remember back to that time in the 90s, of- your reaction when you first heard about the Kennett government deal to bring the GP to Melbourne?
8: Yes, well, I was stunned. I thought that uh, that era was completely gone, and uh, yeah, there were other forces at work behind the scenes that we didn't know about. And of course, no consultation, no real plan on what are the alternatives or anything. The government just—you know—it was the Kennett government. They just rushed through a whole lot of things and that was one of them. That, uh, But it was promised it wouldn't cost the taxpayers anything, uh, except the park, <laughs> that is.
4: So can you yeah. remember how you felt at the time?
8: Well, it was a state of shock uh, to, to think about how would you put a, a car race in there now, given that there are safety standards, etc. Little did we know that they'd have to redo the whole park and um, then, of course, it's a four-month truck in and truck out all of the infrastructure. There's about 40,000 tonnes of infrastructure gets moved in and out, adding to our uh, CO2 emissions, of course, for Australia. But, yeah, it was just uh, completely, you know, no-one could think it through at the time. We were just astounded that the government had decided to do that.
4: So how did the group form?
8: Uh, well, it started very, very early, uh, and it pretty well caught on like a bushfire locally that we all decided after a few months of more and more people joining in to the campaign. So we started off informally, but well-organised.
4: How many members did you have back then?
8: Oh, thousands. We really had thousands. I mean, when we had our rallies, we had the... Uh, our second rally in the city square. Um, it was uh, probably as many as the moratorium era in the, anti- in the Vietnam anti-war period in the, you know, 30 years earlier.
4: And have the objections um, changed over the years?
8: Oh, I think the uh, because the blowout in the costs, um, the argument has shifted to. It's a complete waste of money and a waste of a park, where initially it was just a park issue, uh, but now, you know, if a billion dollars has already been wasted on it, uh, this could be going to hospitals. The Alfred Hospital needs about two million for rebuilding. You know, two billion, I mean, not million. Um, this is sort of a, a serious thing that. Uh, Any economist would say this is just a complete waste of money, and the opportunities you've lost in spending that money somewhere else are are tremendous. And, of course, we still have the problem of the park. It's a park that cannot be uh, a true Melbourne park that's of great value to people for their health and well-being. We'll
4: we'll come back to the um, economic question in a minute. I came across an article that was published in The Conversation a while ago uh, with research undertaken by academics at Murdoch University in Western Australia and they talk about um, urban and national parks having specific purposes including the protection of special environments, flora and fauna. They provide spaces for Australians and visitors to understand our unique landscape and to learn how to tread lightly on the land. Tranquility and peaceful enjoyment are crucial to these ob- objectives. How does the yes. Grand Prix interfere with that?
8: Uh, well, it's a, a gross interference in that the park's been held back. The, I mean, about a third of it's been cleared of trees just for runoffs and things for cars. So it's not functioning as a proper park. Especially, it's uh, the city it's in, uh, City of Port Phillip. It's 59% of the public open space in that city so it 's the major park, and it's uh, it 's completely hamstrung by this uh, months and months of trucking in and trucking out, uh, plus the opportunities uh, to to replant the park into something magnificent It, it could be something like new uh, new york 's central Park is to the people there that 's a healthy place for New Yorkers to get away from. Uh, the concrete and, and the high-rise buildings and and recreate. And this is the same for Melbourne. We've lost that opportunity uh, while there's a Grand Prix there coming in every year to mess the place up.
4: How many trees were chopped down initially in the build?
8: Oh, they said there was going to be uh, just over a hundred it was well over a thousand major trees were chopped down uh, it's typical of the Government of that day, you know, the the promises were just every one of them would turn out to be a lie, basically. So yeah, and and those trees could never be replanted while there's a car race circuit there because they'll interfere with the the temporary grandstands and pit buildings and all those sorts of things.
4: So is it a case of commercial interests overriding environmental and social yes. needs?
8: Oh, yes, definitely. Even uh, the value of the park, it's it's the dearest park managed by Parks Victoria. It's worth a billion dollars, more than a billion dollars, that park, in land value. So the government saw it as worthless. You know, oh, until, you know, we put a car race in there, you can't do anything with it sort of attitude. You know, it's it's the stupidity of not not valuing your assets for their real purpose. And, uh, yeah, so Melbourne's the poorer for it, the whole of Melbourne, really.
4: Now, your group, Save Albert Park, actually commissioned an economist to evaluate the economic impact of the race. What
8: do Yeah, you Rod find? Campbell, Rod Campbell. Yeah, yeah. What he did was uh, he's now, of course, at the Australia Institute. He's the head of research there, but uh, quite a good economist. So he updated the Auditor-General's, uh, cost benefit analysis so it's the only proper way to measure something. you look at the uh the cost as well as the benefits and it came out as a net negative so now, for every dollar that the government uh puts in as a subsidy it the economy goes backwards by a dollar so it's uh it's probably about the worst investment you could get. You know, normally you you say, oh, well, government put in a dollar and they got 90 cents of value. No, this one is a minus one dollar, you know, for every dollar. So it's, uh, yeah, it it just stands out as uh, an example of uh, bad economics as well as uh, a waste of a park.
4: Well, I've got the... uh Government's Victorian Government's media release that came out last year when they uh, decided to extend the Grand Prix contract to 2025, um, they uh, describe the Grand Prix as a roaring success and uh, quote a number of economic figures supporting that. Where do they get yeah. their numbers from?
8: They get their numbers from, uh, first of all, the Grand Prix invents its number of attendees they never count them, they get free scanners to scan tickets, they refuse to count. So so they put up a figure that's highly disputed by others of how many people actually attend. Uh we we maintain about seventy thousand tickets are sold. So that's the start point. In their ways of doing economics is these statements. Now an impact statement if you have a bushfire like we've had recently it's cost the economy a lot of money but they can turn that type of idea around if you spend more money then as a result of having a bushfire that's they consider that a benefit the same as if you have a car race that the government spends a lot of money on and you don't look at the costs this is the whole point with their modeling it's an impact model that doesn't look at the costs so of course it will always have a plus figure in front of it and this is called uh, used to be called voodoo economics or you know there's a whole lot of uh, derogatory comments about that type of economics it's, uh, it's a failure to actually be honest with the people that's what they're doing, they're failing if they if they call that a benefit, it's not a benefit it's an impact
4: Is there any hope of change?
8: Uh, It's bipartisan support, and uh, each Premier has their own corporate box in there worth around $1.5 million now a year. They invite some uh, people that they think are important to them, such as editors or executives from media outlets. So the commercial media uh, seem to be wined and dined, and uh, this is part of the problem. If it's Labor and Liberal both agreeing... And uh, their big chance to, you know, it's the only chance that a premier of the day has to have this lavish corporate hospitality uh, at taxpayers' expense. Um, So it's very hard for them to, you know, see the other side of it, that what is the benefit for Victoria um, or is it a loss to Victoria? And it's certainly a loss, but uh, it's a conflict of interest for them, isn't it?
4: Surely it's a bad advertisement in terms of uh, the climate crisis that we're facing. Oh, I could yes, think of nothing a... that was more controversial in terms of uh, generating <laughs> pollution and yes. uh, interfering with the environment. And
8: yeah, it's the whole thing wrapped up in one big celebration of fossil fuel. And uh, it, even the, you know, the trucking in and out of all of this infrastructure, you know, tens of thousands of tonnes of infrastructure, to set it up and pull it down, uh, and and then you know these cars whiz around for two hours, burning up huge quantities of fossil fuel. So it's uh, it's a bit of an anachronism. Uh, in fact, it's uh, you know once you got to the end of the 20th century, the people were saying uh, this is this is a waste, and so now we're well into the 21st century, and we're facing the serious risk of climate change, uh, and we're celebrating it in the park.
4: Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? It's a real policy issue, whether they look at the Grand Prix in that broader picture of what they're trying to change and improve elsewhere, or as a (laughs) one-off event that basically is excused from accountability.
8: Oh, yeah. There's an analogy with politics, isn't there, that with whether it's climate change or gay marriage or anything the public the general public say they know this is wrong we have to fix the problem politicians go oh no we can't say we're wrong we have to keep going and throwing you know good money after bad or or keep going with our policies we always had you know they 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 can't be challenged to actually say we've wasted a billion dollars we don't want to waste another one we're going to change now and divert that money that would have gone into the Grand Prix into something useful for Victoria. You know, this is a problem in the psychology of how our state or country is run.
4: And that was Peter Laylaw, spokesperson for the Save Albert Park Group. You can find more information on Save Albert Park at www.save-albert-park.org.au forward slash... And a couple of side notes to that story. Across its 21 events worldwide, the Formula One emits 256,000 tonnes of CO2. Interestingly, of that, only 0.7% of the emissions actually come from the power used by the 10 teams racing at the Grand Prix. The vast majority of the carbon footprint, 73%, comes from international travel and logistics associated with the event, that is moving the people associated with it in setting it up, and also the vehicles. The Formula One has set itself the goal of becoming carbon neutral by 2030, but the details are extremely scanty. Meanwhile, the Andrews government has announced it will continue hosting the Grand Prix at Albert Park until 2025, with no mention of how that fits with its climate action policy. And in another move, which seems to ignore the Grand Prix's impacts, just last Friday the government announced a crackdown on high-speed driving in Victoria. I quote from the press release, High-speed hoons and dangerous drivers will be immediately taken from the roads as part of tough new laws in Victoria. Obviously a strong move to keep the community safe, but interesting timing when the same government is about to host a high-thrills, high-speed motor race in the heart of its capital city. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons.
0: Subscribe to 3CR fighting for social justice and environmental change.
2: And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead. The current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't.
0: Feed Radical Radio, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on nine four one nine eight three double seven. Follow, follow the sun.
4: We're now going to play the. A conversation I had with Dr Donna Bridges from Charles Sturt University in Bathurst, New South Wales. Donna is a sociologist specialising in gender in the workplace and has looked inside a number of male-dominated industries to see how gender plays out. Last week we played an excerpt from the interview where she talked about the experience of female workers in the construction industry, a field where women make up only 1-3% to of the manual trade workforce. She went on to discuss issues relating to men in construction, illuminating both harmful behaviours and serious health issues that affect men. However, given that yesterday was International Women's Day, we've decided to play the whole interview again, um, including the aspects that relate to women and the aspects that relate to men. And a warning, this interview contains material concerning mental health and suicide that may be distressing for some listeners. If this type of content is a trigger for you, you may wish to tune out for the next 20 to 25 minutes. Welcome Donna, thank you for speaking to me on 3CR. Thank you for having me. Donna, you have explored workplace gender in a number of industries, aviation, defence and now construction. Are these industries you would describe as male-dominated?
7: Absolutely. And for women working in the industry, it's considered non-traditional employment.
4: So what makes an industry male-dominated? Are we talking actual numbers of workers or a pervasive culture or something else?
7: Well, we call it male-dominated when there are less than 25% women in the industry. And um, there are issues with the culture, but the definition doesn't have anything to do with the culture. And all three of these industries have extremely low numbers of women, much lower than the 25%.
4: And in the construction industry, I believe it's as low as 1% to 3%
7: you're talking about in construction. If we lump all women working in construction together, you hit around 10%, uh, but that includes clerical workers in administration. So it kind of obscures the stats in that way. But if we just look at women who are on the tools, who are in the skilled trades of like carpentry and building and electrical, we're looking at anywhere between one to three percent depending on the occupation and the location
4: so we're talking about a non-traditional workplace for women
7: yeah one of the most gender segregated industries in australia
4: so what are the issues for women in that particular industry at the moment
7: well i suppose it's difficult to recruit women into the industry and then when the recruiting processes happen they're often informal You know, when somebody gets an apprenticeship, it's often because they know somebody's dad. You know, somebody in the family might take them on or something like that. So people in the industry aren't actually looking at women as being a potential recruiting pool, and girls themselves aren't really seeing the work as something that they want to do. But the few women that do go in, they find getting a job really hard, somebody trusting that because they're a girl they, you know, it's not going to interfere with whether or not they can do the job. Um, and then when they get there, there's all kinds of barriers. They're not really accepted in work there's a bit of um, workplace discrimination, sometimes some harassment.
4: So then there are retention issues?
7: Absolutely. So there's lots of um, people who drop out during that apprenticeship period or they drop out because they can't get a job in the first place. They might do a pre-apprenticeship program and then they just can't get a job. Um, And then you've got retention issues happening all the way through the career. So um, some women who are a little bit older, who get out in their thirties, they say, oh, look, I'm just sick of it. I just, I can't do it anymore. I don't want these issues at
4: work. So if we take out the clerical um, workers, and we stick with the manual trades. Um, What sort of culture is around the workplace um, if we're talking construction?
7: Well, look, I think it's quite an unregulated culture in that you don't have a standard organisation where people turn up every day and be an electrician or be a carpenter. So people are often, uh, particularly in the building industry, and construction, they're going off out into the world every day to different sites and there's all kinds of contracted workers on that site. So it's pretty hard to manage it with HR policies and so on. We'd like to see some improvement in that area like a policy that would support people, whether they're men or women, in that environment, where you know there's lots of contracted workers and people coming and going, where there's still some ability to determine what happens to people when they're at work.
4: Can you talk um, to some of the experiences you've heard about through interviewing women in these workplaces?
7: Yeah, sure. So um, some women, you know, that we've talked to, we've talked to quite a few tradeswomen from different trades and, look, they love their work. They're very happy. A lot of them have amazing employers, which is why they're still in there. Um, Some of them have gone off into business for themselves and they're really enjoying that. They have a fantastic client base. But those that are working on those construction sites and in, you know, bigger workshops, tell us that there are issues with some co-workers that just won't talk to them or, you know, new people that turn up on the site and they say to them, well, you know, who the hell are you? What are you doing here? Girls can't do this. They're quite defensive and aggressive toward them and they report to us that after you've turned up on a new site, you know, for the 50th time, and someone's still walking up to you and saying in an aggressive and hostile way, what are you doing here? And, you know, using bad language while they're saying it, it just starts to wear them down. They find it really, really difficult. And there's a level of surveillance that can come with that too. Like, you know, is she doing it properly? Can she do it? You know, she's a woman, so perhaps she can't do the work. So some women have reported to us that they They'll go down and they'll fix something and then there's another call to their to their area that says, oh, somebody come down and look at it. We don't know if she's done it properly. Whereas she's a qualified, trusted tradesperson in her own area and it, it, she can do the work. But having to deal with that constant surveillance and rudeness, really, um, yeah, they find
4: difficult. Extremely. And what about um, sexual intimidation? Is that an issue for women in the work that work environment?
7: There is an attitude within the industry that this is quite normal and you just ignore it and it'll go away. Um, some women have said to me, you know what guys are like, they're constantly talking about your body, they're constantly talking about sex around you, and I think, oh, mm, well. You know, not at my work, that doesn't happen. Um, And also I have heard reports of, you know, in the TAFE institutions, for instance, uh, some fellow students being quite inappropriate with body parts and, you know, showing them to the women in the classroom, that kind of thing. So I think that's quite intimidating and scary when you're the only woman there and that's happening because it has all sorts of implications about what might happen next or how far are they prepared to take this. And, you know, it might be funny to the um majority group, but not so much if you're in the minority and you're finding it a bit scary. So there's a certain level of acceptance of it, though, um, that we find talking to both men and women. The whole boys will be boys attitude and you know if a woman makes a fuss about it then she's a princess and she's not going to fit in so I think they do try not to say anything.
4: Why do you think it's so hard for these particular men to accept a woman doing the same job as them?
7: Yeah that's quite the question in all the industries that I've looked into I've wondered that and I don't know that anybody's answered it. Why? Why is it difficult for them to accept? really don't know. I certainly don't understand why they mobilise as a group against a woman. That's something I don't understand. Uh, I can understand finding it difficult to stick up for women when they see inappropriate things happening uh, because it then puts you in the spotlight. But I don't understand the being part of the group or being an individual that perpetrates that kind of uh, behaviour towards somebody else.
4: Yeah, well, we'll just hold on to that issue for the moment because I want to just switch the discussion. You have also done a lot of research into the macho culture being harmful to male employees in the construction industry. What are the expectations of men in the industries And is there a notion that they too must be tough and suck it up?
7: Yes, I think so. And it was interesting to find this in the industry that a lot of men are struggling. There's actually high rates of psychological distress amongst construction workers. And um, I think there is an expectation that men are tough and strong and can deal with anything that's happening the hard work, the the difficult hours, the being on contract all the time, that there might be other workers around you that are hostile and difficult, people are being bullied and they're not necessarily coping with this but there's an expectation that they should be able to cope with it, that they can be strong and independent.
4: Do men tend to reach out for help if they're having those issues?
7: Perhaps not. I think we hear anecdotally as well as we're hearing from, you know, Beyond Blue and everything that men do need help with reaching out. And there's certainly some activity in the sector at the moment from Mates in Construction and the Blue Hats program where they're reaching out to men and they're making people um, on work sites and within organisations uh, be an advocate, somebody you can go to to find out about counselling um, to challenge stereotypes. They're putting posters up, things like that, which is really positive,
4: isn't that? Absolutely. Fantastic. Um, I just want to emphasise to uh, listeners how uh, serious the mental health issues are in, in the construction industry, that suicide amongst tradies is actually 50% higher uh, in that industry than other industries, which is an ex- exorbitant um, figure. So how much of that can be tied back to the emotional fallout from the culture, the intimidating, inappropriate behaviours, um, the, the need to contain emotional issues uh, versus the physical side of the, the work and injury um, and perhaps the, the nature of the transience in, in the industry? Yeah,
7: I think transience is a really big issue in secure work distress and poor mental well-being, isn't it? So uh, I think the question that you're asking would have to go to research and be really drilled down on how much of it, can we separate the factors or are they all lumped into one and all having an input? How much of it is culture? I think some of it can be linked to culture, most because there's been some high profile suicides particularly from young people that have come as a direct result of bullying and hazing and that bullying and hazing happened at work and it's happened from supervisors as well as colleagues so that's definitely cultural and that's a quite a strong link but then you do have the inflexible work conditions the long hours and the insecure work as well that people would need to be talked to and their cases looked at individually in order for that to be
4: assessed. Sure. Um, now, you've mentioned this term hazing. I wasn't familiar with that term before I spoke to you the other day. Perhaps you could just enlighten um, listeners who may also be unfamiliar and explain what, what that means
7: emotionalized ritual bullying that has been quite common uh, particularly in universities and boarding schools in the military and um, it's like initiation rituals where um, new people are subjected to a certain level of sure but it has been ruled out as something students are allowed to do and it's gotten a fair bit of attention in the military too as being an unhealthy dysfunctional practice
4: Where fun crosses the line into harmful behaviour Yeah. Now you've... um mentioned the very thing I wanted to come back to that collective behaviour and I wondered if that might be at the core of both these um, groups who are subject to um, bad behaviours both uh, in the case of the female workers we talked about earlier and also these young apprentices. How much of that do you think is a result of peer pressure or a need for the workers to, to come together and feel secure in a group and the the way that unfolds is that they're actually exhibiting bad behavior to other members of the group.
7: You yeah, know, well, I suppose if it's cultural, then it becomes a practice that people don't analyze. They just become part of it and do it unthinkingly. And it reflects the values of the group who are part of the culture. So they think it's important, or, or they think it's not a problem, it happened to them and it didn't upset them. Um, it's what you do, so uh, we just do it, we don't think about it. Um, I think what you're alluding to there is perhaps a really important point that it can be, it could be replaced by other forms of bonding, other ways of socializing in the group. So rather than have a dysfunctional, potentially dangerous and harmful group bonding experience, you have something much more positive and affirming, which is perhaps what groups like Mates in Construction are trying to achieve.
4: It would be interesting if you did ask the people who have um, belittled or carried out these initiation rituals against uh, their co-workers about their own experience when they were the apprentice just to see whether they did endure it happily or in, the, in a comedic spirit or whether they too at the time were actually emotionally affected and whether that's then forgotten when uh, their turn comes to, uh, to uh, dish out the same treatment.
7: Yes, and it may well be forgotten. It would be interesting to talk to them about it though, wouldn't it? Particularly perhaps you know, to avoid that, that they've forgotten, um, is to get them when they're still quite young. So ones that are, you know, 25 to 30 rather than much older, they, the experience would be more memorable.
4: And you also mentioned the Blue Hats program, which sounds like a, a fantastic initiative uh, to, to identify people within an organisation who are there to help... Um, should these sorts of behaviours arise um, and as well as encouraging better codes of conduct. Um, What other actions are taking place to address these problems? I think some
7: of the bigger organisations are making counselling available and, you know, I think that's important because they're making it free and confidential and you can have a certain amount of counselling sessions they're providing information and resources as well, so directing people outside of the organisation where they might feel more comfortable to, to access support. And I think by having the posters up and by having that really strong leadership, you know, somebody in leadership going around with a blue hat or advocating for, you know, this is what we're doing now and we can take some time to do this, then they're sending a really clear message yeah, we've got a problem, we're doing something about it and we, you know, we care. So the difference between going to a supervisor to say, oh, look, I'm having some issues, I'm feeling overwhelmed at work and getting some panic attacks, so I need to kind and of get some help and take time off, when you think your boss is on board, would be quite different to if you felt as though, you know, people would laugh at you or talk behind your back or something like that. So... We're doing great things.
4: And do you, do you feel that there needs to be women in those roles so that women in that industry who are experiencing a problem can talk to a woman about it? If there's an association between men and the issue, maybe talking to a, a male with a blue hat might be problematic for some women? I
7: think it would be great if there were some women in the role. I think it's one of the barriers that there aren't enough women generally, which means that, you know, you don't have women in leadership, you don't have women role models and mentors, and this would be an area where it would be really good to have some women leaders and role models. And also, I think research in the past has said that some men feel more comfortable going to a woman and another man to talk about their problems. So it would be beneficial for both men and women.
4: And just before we finish, uh, talking about a, the culture in these workplaces and then the bigger culture that we face in society around group behaviours and macho male behaviours, what can parents, schools, the community do to contribute to this
7: I suppose just be there for young people, make it really clear that that kind of behavior is unacceptable and they don't have to put up with it. They can talk to somebody about it and, you know, I think some people that we've talked to in the industry don't understand there's actually laws against this stuff, the bullying and the hazing and discrimination, uh, treating people in such a way that they can then become suicidal
4: and the person working next to you with the tools might well be your sister or your best friend's niece or someone else that you know in a personal capacity, and just because you're at the workplace doesn't give you an excuse to treat them any differently.
7: That's right, and it'd be great if people were making that connection more often. We have found in the trades that if a woman has is working in a family business or is working alongside their father or their husband or something that they face um, less barriers. And that's also been found in aviation too. Women pilots whose husband is a pilot are protected from a lot of the, you know, gendered insults or discrimination. So that's kind of interesting. So if they could remember that, it would be great.
4: That was Dr. Donna Bridges, sociologist from Charles Sturt University, talking about gender issues in the construction industry. And if the content in this segment has raised questions for you or caused distress or you or someone you know is at risk of suicide, please call Lifeline on 131114 and we'll be putting some other contact numbers uh, on our website for mental health support. We'd like to thank all our guests today and stay tuned for Women on the Line. Three CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find NIBS in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.